I think that's one of the exciting things about working in private equity is that there is a time horizon, right? It's, it's very analogous to a sports game. You have nine innings or four quarters or three periods in that fact. You know, you're brought in, you have a, a goal to accomplish in a set period of time. Welcome to The X Factor, where we visit with proven private equity-backed leaders to unpack a compelling area of value creation to help our listeners gain an edge as they grind toward a liquidity event of their own. X Factor is presented by Private Equity CXO, the world's largest digital community of PE-backed executives. You can find a link to PECXO in the description to start your free membership and unlock exclusive content. I'm your host, Rob Huxtable, partner at Falcon, a retained executive search firm exclusively focused on recruiting C-suite executives for private equity-owned portfolio companies. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Jack Slinger, president and CEO of Gerard Daniel. Jack is a multi-exited PE-backed CEO, and we're excited to hear his insight into the complex topic of leading an exit and getting to that all-important liquidity event. Jack, welcome, and let's get into it. Thanks, Rob. Nice to see you again. I'm Jack Slinger. I'm a CEO in the private equity world. I've been a CEO in the middle market space for over 20 years. I have gone through probably five to seven exits and have worked with probably five or six different private equity firms. Um, some only one time, some a couple of times. It's definitely a close knit industry. And the more deals you go through, the more firms you meet, you know, the more people you have a chance to work with going forward. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. So just to frame up the exit and why it's so important for those in the audience that haven't necessarily been through the process, when you join a private equity-backed company, you're signing up to complete a mission, which includes helping to recapitalize the company in the future. Maybe that's two, three, five, or seven years from now, depending on the thesis and the hold period. But boy, that's what it's all about, getting to that finish line and, and bringing on that new investor, not just because that's what the mission was to begin with, but for the executives who are sacrificing so much time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears, that, that's where the lion's share of compensation is realized. So just give us your sense of why the exit is so important and how you kind of think about the process before we get into the details. Sure. I mean, you know, and I think that's one of the exciting things about working in private equity is that there is a time horizon, right? It's, it's very analogous to a sports game. You have nine innings or four quarters or three periods in that fact. You know, you're brought in, you have a, a goal to accomplish in a set period of time. And that time was typically anywhere from two to seven years, like you stated. And sometimes it's a quick deal. Sometimes it lasts the full seven. I've, I've experienced both ends of that spectrum. And, you know, the beauty is that if you hit your goal, there's something at the end and the end is a transaction. And typically that transaction is financially rewarding to both the CEO and the management team and your financial sponsor. And so it is exciting when you get close to the end and you're going to realize your goals that you set and your financial sponsor set. And that milestone typically is based on EBITDA. They purchased a company at X and they want to take it to Y. And there's, you know, there's different levels of that threshold and, the further up the EBITDA ladder you go, the different set of buyers there are. And because, you know, there's firms that, that uh, concentrate in the small space and then the middle market. And then you have the very, very large firms that are looking at huge companies that are carve outs that then they eventually want to take uh, through an IPO process. So 
you know, there's a wide spectrum of, of goals and buyers and strategies on an exit. But, but most of the time, the exit, you know, does not result in an IPO. It, it'll be sold to a strategic buyer or another financial sponsor. And you determine besides your EBITDA threshold they want to get to, they, they're in their thesis when they purchased the company and started, started you as a platform to grow. And, you know, when there's two avenues of growth that they expect, one is organic growth. And so you have to have a good growth plan in place and focus on new business development and growing your business organically. And then typically there's also an M&A strategy involved. And that is making sure you're, you're picking a growth engine that uh, either gives you scale in a product category or might enable you to have further distribution or get you into a new market or a new continent to sell your product. So it's a twofold strategy on, on getting that growth and growing that EBITDA or growing that bottom line to get to an exit. And, you know, a typical one that you look at is they'll, they'll try to benchmark a three times their investment. That's a kind of middle of the road shot in the fairway. And, you know, a lot of times you can score a lot higher than that. And in private equity, you don't bat a thousand either. There's going to be deals that just time out or you had things that impacted your return that were outside of the company's control or outside of management's control. And it might just be a one for one. They just get their money back. You don't, you don't hit a home run 10 out of 10 times in private equity. And then, you know, companies typically are then sold on a multiple that EBITDA. And they'll look at their return on, they might buy a company at a five or six or seven X of, of EBITDA and through growth and through scalability and size, they might get an eight to 10 or a 15 or a 20 X. That's where, that's where the return is made. And there's a lot of factors that, that go into what that multiple is. You know, it's the attractiveness of the market the company's in. It's what is the growth plan or the next financial sponsor or strategic buyer knows they can then take it from X to Y. Are there M&A opportunities to grow? So not only do you have a new business development pipeline, but is there an M&A pipeline that, that the next owner can help grow the company at? So, so let's, let's agree that there's a three act play in private equity. You know, the early years are heavy investment in yes. upgrades, team systems. Act two is sort of the middle years of, okay, how can we uh, leverage those investments? And, and maybe EBITDA wasn't the sole focus early, but now it's really starting to come mm-hmm. into view. And then as we sort of enter act three, which might be roughly a year or 18 months before sale, we start thinking about getting the company ready for sale. So before we talk yes. through what it's like to run an exit process, take us through what you've seen in terms of the, the six months leading up to signing up an investment banker to take the company through sale, whether it be focusing a little bit more on cost takeout, EBITDA optimization. What does that look like from your experience? The six to 12 months prior to going through a sale process are, are very important because you really have to get things in order for the next buyer because you want the business to be clean. You want to make sure there's no legal issues. You want to try to optimize footprint if you can. So, you know, if you have a very underperforming facility or a facility that doesn't have scale, you either begin the process of consolidating down your footprint or at least have a plan in place that you're in that process when you go into your process. You definitely look at profitability. Margin enhancement is a big one. You want to make sure that you're maximizing your pricing. You're taking out any unnecessary or unneeded costs. Long-term contracts with customers are always attractive in a sale that they know that 
you know, your top 20 customers aren't just PO to PO based, right? Do you have a secure customer base? Are they longtime customers? Making sure you don't have a lot of quality issues that are coming by or a bunch of ad backs. So you really want a, a clean P&L. You want to be maximizing your profitability on your product lines. Margins are improvement. New business development funnel is very key because your multiple can go up one, two, three X based on do you have a growth strategy in place that, you know, that you can execute on. Yeah, right. So if an asset's going to trade in a range of, say, 10 to 14 times EBITDA, that range gets dictated by scale, TAM, but also on the growth rate. People yes. want to pay more for a faster growing company. Okay, so let's let's walk it forward. You, you and the sponsor have interviewed bankers. You've signed somebody up. They work with you to put together a book that is a comprehensive story of your company with a very bullish outlook on what the next five sure. years look like. That book will go out to a hundred different parties, some strategic buyers, some financial buyers, and, and take us through what happens next. So those parties receive the book and what do they come back with after they review the deal and decide that they'd like to learn more? Yeah. So there's a lot of work that goes into getting that sim or that book prepared and ready and sent out to a broad range of potential buyers, as you said. Not only are you gathering all your sales data and customer data and operational data, but you're also developing a data room on the backside. And that data room then is opened up to the potential buyers after you narrow them down to, you know, for maybe 120 down to 30. And, you know, you're putting a lot of data in there that will hopefully answer a lot of the, of the potential buyer's questions, but that's a very time-consuming process. You're also going through usually internally the quality of earnings report and that while your buyer will probably also do one, getting that quality of earnings report done internally just helps verify the numbers you have in your book. And just, it's just kind of a check the box. Yeah. An independent party looked at it. These numbers make sense. That's a very time consuming process because you're getting a lot of questions asked with regard to the business phase ones or another one. You want to make sure you don't have any environmental issues at any of the sites you're operating at, even if you lease or own, same difference. And typically the books will, like you said, go out to 120 different buyers, strategic, financial, quasi in between those. And they'll come back with a few questions to the investment bankers. They'll come back with you for them to try to do a preliminary valuation of your company. And it's usually very a typical wide range at this at the first early stages of a process. They might have a, a multiple range of your EBITDA of 3x. So someone might say, yeah, you know, on the high end, we'll pay seven. At the low end, it might be four. Usually it's a pretty broad range that the first round of bids come in. You value those talking about them with your investment banker, as well as your current financial sponsor. And you'll narrow that down to about 20, 24. Mm -hmm. Those 24 then get access to a management team to ask them questions. They'll get access to the data room and they're asked then to kind of narrow down their bid. And so, so that would be called sort of the management presentation phase where they meet you and the team and you kind of present the business to them in a very yes. organized, strategic manner. They're also getting access to the data room, but the banker is also controlling that process so that it's very organized. And the buyers at this stage who have who have signed, I guess, an indication of interest, you know, are still operating at arm's length. Take us through the strategies that you've employed in the management presentation phase when you're presenting to this dozen or more preliminary number of buyers. 
Yeah, so it, it's a very stressful time because usually over a two-week period, you're doing two of these management presentations every day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And you're having lunch then with the morning party. And then in the afternoon party, you have a dinner. So it is an all-day affair for, you know, it can be two to three weeks at a time. And what's the length? How many hours is a typical management presentation? Typically three to four hours. It'll be in person. Usually the potential buyers will bring in anywhere from two to six people. And then they'll also have several people on the telephone. You go through a process where you, you present the company. It's a more expanded version of the, of the SIM that they received. And there's a lot of Q&A. It's a lot of Q&A back and forth. I think that it's stressful in the sense that you got to have tough skin because you're getting questioned on everything. Why this number? Why this trend? Why this customer? Why this product? Why are you doing this? Why didn't you do this? And, you know, you just... And that's, a, that's a private equity thing, right? I mean, they, they are logical, analytical, mm-hmm. fact-based individuals, which is good. Uh, yes. They're, they're authorizing tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of an equity check to go into a deal. And so they're cross-examining your Mm -hmm. numbers and and your presentation to look for kind of durability of the presentation to see how real versus not contrived, but, you know, it's like selling a home. Is is a room cozy or is it just small? And and they decide for themselves what that looks like. What advice do you have specifically to how to best answer those cross-examination questions that are being delivered to you from would-be buyers? Sure. And that's what I said. You have to have tough skin in the sense that it's not personal, right? I mean, they might disagree with the strategy or the actions or how you've run the company as a CEO, but again, it's not personal. So you can't get defensive about it. You still have to stay very positive and just explain why you made the decision you made and why you do it. And, you know, hey, in a perfect world, we might've done this, but it's not a perfect world. So we had to do, you know, action B, for example. You must convey confidence in why you do things that you do and why the actions and the business is running how it is, and also be very optimistic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, with you guys as our next partner, I, I want to do X, Y, and Z, and I think we can go from, from A to B through these growth plans or these potential acquisitions. And one hard part of, of doing two a day and, and doing the same presentation you know, 12 times is maintaining that level of enthusiasm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely presentation fatigue that sets yeah. in and you got to overcome that. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You got to get through all 12 and you got to be as excited when you do the presentation the 12th time as you do the first time. I, I've been told by parties that, you know, keep your answers direct and succinct, answer questions that were asked and don't get into rabbit holes where you find yourself offering up maybe volunteered information that wasn't relevant to the question. And I think to the point you made, it's this fact-based answer process where on one hand, you're standing up for what the company is, but you're also sort of leaning into what it isn't yet, because that's going to be part of their thesis with you. Hey, you know, yeah, we haven't even looked at Europe yet. We're excited to do that with you. Yes, we haven't ramped up NPD because we've been so focused on organic growth of existing product line and M&A, but we're excited to do that with you. So some of these sort of gaps or vacancies of your business today are actually what they're excited to do with you in the next hold period. Yeah. And, you know, and be honest. I mean, that's the biggest one is you Mm -hmm. don't want to get caught 
stretching the truth or lying about something because these guys could be your next owner, right? Yep. And so you don't have a bad relationship with them. So you just got to be honest. Yeah, I've seen that before where because the management team did such a good job messaging the story, the buyer mm -hmm. paid maybe more than they would have otherwise paid. And now we're in bed together with the new hold period and they're not happy because they realize that they did pay more than they should have. And they can't blame the seller because they're out of the yep. picture. The only one they can look toward is, is management. What is the support role, if any, of the selling sponsor? Obviously, management's in the crosshairs of these presentations and handling all the questions. What are they doing, if anything? I would say during the process, they have very little involvement. Um, their involvement occurs once a final buyer is selected. You know, Someone is selected with an LOI and gets exclusivity, mm -hmm. and you're negotiating the purchase agreement. That's yeah. typically then when the sponsor steps back in. Okay, so let's go there. So you've gone through the, the dozen or two dozen management presentations. Those would-be buyers are encouraged to then decide, do you want to get serious Mm -hmm. And and what happens then? What's the inbound from the select group who says, yeah, I want to take a run at Jack's business? You'll typically then narrow it down from maybe 12 to three, ask people if they have any more questions, give them access to me and my team if they want to talk to us and ask them. And then from as they revise and submit their final LOI bid, you select one. And you make that and decision. So just to explain the vernacular. So you mentioned SIM earlier, which is the confidential yes. investment memorandum, which is the investment banking deck, hundred and some mm -hmm. pages that walks through the current, past, and future state of the business. And now you're talking about an LOI, which is the letter of intent. So it's it's their formal bid to say, we are serious. We want to buy you. Maybe you get three to five of those. And then mm -hmm. you, with the sponsors at the lead, are going to decide, okay, we're going to pick this buyer to enter into the exclusive letter of intent to really sharpen our pencils and get down to business. Yes, correct. And once that happens, there is it's usually a quick period. You know, a typical close is anywhere from 30 to 90 days. Uh, 45, 60 is usually the average, mm -hmm. I would say. And there's a lot of work then because there's a lot of questions that get asked. They bring their lender in who they're going to get financing from to do the deal. So there's a bunch of diligence questions that are asked by the lender. They usually have an accounting firm, you know, verify the quality of earnings, the Q of E that was done. You're visiting all your plants with them. It's a typically one day trip. And, you know, if you have a bunch of plants that can take a week. Uh, you know, so by the way, you're still running your business through this whole process. So I want to remind the audience, for those that haven't been through it, when we write up our position specs for roles, we we call out the fact that when you do go through the sale process, it's going to feel like a second full-time job. Is that an overstatement, Jack? No. And I was going to mention that, Rob. That's so true because you're consumed day and night going through this process. But at the meantime, you got to run your business because any slippage in results is a red flag. You've got to make sure you're hitting your number, you're hitting your budget, or you're hitting whatever you forecasted and what you presented to them because mm -hmm. the multiple that they pay on your business is based on a TTM or a trailing 12 months. And if that starts declining, then bids start declining. Or if during the, this process, when you were having your management presentations with the, with the you know, 12 folks, or now that you're down to one person that you're exclusive with, if you have a bad month, they might want to retrade. Their bid might have been, you know, I'm going to pick a number, $100 million. Well, if you just had a very, very bad month, they might say, hey, is this a one-off or is this now a trend in the business declining? We want to retrade our offer down to $90 million now. 
So you've got and, to run through the tape with that business performance, yes. running a second full-time job in terms of demands. And if the whole exit process can take up to six to eight months, and you just mentioned the LTM, well, that's half of your pro forma uh, or yes. more that, that is under duress. So, okay. So the LOI gets signed and then maybe in another conversation, when we have more time, we can talk through the skirmishes that unfold around what is an ad back, what isn't an ad back. Should it yes. be a 12 month multiple? Is it a go forward? What are the real Q of E? But that's between the sponsors to kind of fight, fight through. I've seen plenty of heartbreaking stories, Jack, where a company was close to exit and they got, you know, the LOI signed up and then the adjustment to the offer came in and the sponsor that's selling it said, you know what, I'm just not selling. There are other reasons why a sale process can fall apart, which are, it's heartbreaking because you've just, as a management team, you've just sacrificed three to five years. This is the brass ring. A majority of your compensation is coming at liquidity. I'm not sure if you've ever had a failed sale process, but if you've ever come close to one bogging down, what are the two or three perils that can really upend an otherwise good outcome in a transaction? I think there's three of them. One is your your current performance, like we stated. If if you take your if you and your team take your eye off the ball and get totally consumed with the sale process and the business slips from an operational standpoint, mm-hmm. that can derail a process because they might want to retrade at a lower price. And like you said, the sponsor might say, I'm not willing to accept that return. We're going to hold it. Another one would be a lost customer or a lost major piece of business or something from a legal or environmental standpoint came up during diligence that could, you know, that could be detrimental to a deal. And if a deal gets tabled or you got to pull out of the process, it's not a matter of, well, in 12 months, we're going to go to market again. That reset is, is at a minimum another 24 months because everybody's going to remember, Mm -hmm. Hey, you guys went to market 12 months ago. I remember getting the book, something negative must've happened why are you coming back in 12 months? It's a reset of another 24 to 36 months before you can come back to market. So it's a, it's yeah. a big deal. And, and whether it's fair or not, when mm-hmm. that happens, there oftentimes is a casualty of a CEO or CFO who takes the bullet for, for the failed process, whether fair or not. You go from inches away from a multi-million dollar liquidity event to being on the market explaining to future employers why you were terminated and couldn't sell the company. So it is a perilous situation. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, good deal. So last question here is when the new buyer comes in, if it is a financial buyer and another private equity firm, part of what they're going to buy is management. But you may not necessarily be committed to staying with the company. Maybe you've been there for a while. Maybe it's an industry that you're sort of looking to try something new. But you've got to present to the sellers that you're excited about the company. So how do you strike that balance of sincerity about your true interest versus you're not queering the deal by causing them to come up, you know, to to lose faith that management's going to be intact? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, I think you'd be upfront and honest. You never know what's really going to happen, right? If it's if it's a strategic buyer, in many cases, several members of the senior management team do not continue on in the deal. And that's just a reality of private equity. And I think that you just got to accept the fact that you might be out of a job at the end of a transaction. If it's it's a financial sponsor, I think that if you have a very, very strong management team, if you're the CEO and you have a very, very strong management team under you, that the risk isn't as great for a financial sponsor if, if you butt heads with them or, you know, 
you don't know everything about who your next partner is going to be till after the transaction happens and you have more meetings together and you might have a different strategy than they do. And that's okay. As long as you have a strong management team underneath you, I think that, you know, there's not ill will there should a CEO walk away. But in most cases, you stay. And the exciting part is it's a clean slate. It's a reset. And you get to start all over again. And, you know, it's fun. You're starting all over again. And how do you get the company from point A to point B? And you have new ideas coming in because you have a fresh financial sponsor. And, you know, it's an exciting time also. Yeah. And it's unlike signing up for a new job where you can only diligence so much, you know, this business inside now because you just yeah. been running it for several years. Okay. Jack, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, sure. we'll, if you're willing, have you back in the future to unpack a few of these subtopics, but um, Godspeed to everybody out there chasing an exit. That's what it's all about, right? Yes. Thanks, Rob. Okay, Jack. Take care. Thanks. Tune in for our next episode on hiring, training, and retaining sales reps and the role that management can play in making it happen. I'm your host, Rob Huxtable, and thank you for listening to The X Factor.